I'm Josh Cooperman, host and publisher of Convo by Design, with something new for you. Dropping this on a Friday for a very good reason. You're going to want to get a drink. In the summer of 2020, the pandemic was in full effect. We were all locked in and trying to figure out what was going to happen next, right? You remember, you were doing the exact same thing. So besides the day drinking and looking up old friends on Facebook, I was trying to learn new ways to be socially engaged. On at least one occasion, John McClain, Eric Peterson, and I met via Zoom to share a few pops tell stories. Basically, we were just hanging out on a, on a Friday night. One of the things I did during that time, during the same time, rather, was binge watch Drunk History, Dinner for Five, and Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown and No Reservations. Groundbreaking shows that I never seemed to be able to find time to watch before. I became enamored with the skill by which Anthony Bourdain found a complete language revolving around food and association to society. How Jon Favreau could take four celebrities and craft a, a vibrant tableau out of each of the stories shared around a table. How Derek Waters told stories through the honest interpretations of historical events through the drunken lens of comics woven together as a tapestry featuring some of the funniest people working in Hollywood. Amazing. Then, all of a sudden, it was over. Things opened up, like, all at once, right? We all got busy. Really busy. And I've been missing some of those evenings at the virtual bar. By the way, my virtual bar is called Big D Energy. Uh, big design energy for my hip-hop loving friends. Wouldn't want there to be any, any confusion. Don't get the wrong idea. So I got an idea that I have been toying with for about two years, and I finally got a chance to do it. And what better way to launch this than to reunite with John and Eric? This is Drinking About Design, featuring John McClain, who tells the stories of William Haynes. I'm also sharing an interesting story that you might find fascinating. Eric Peterson is talking about Al Beadle. You have probably never heard of Al Beadle. Well, you will now. This is just three friends getting together at a local virtual watering hole, talking a little shit and telling stories. And yes, this is a very different concept than the episodes of Convo by Design that you have heard in the past. We're drinking, and this episode, uh, it carries the explicit label. If you are sensitive to salty language, you might want to delete this episode and, uh, and move on to the next one. With that, I give you the first installment of Drinking About Design. I'm not totally sure how to set this up. So I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there. And I, I was mentioning this before I hit record. So I think it was like a, right around the same time, three years ago, the three of us were on Zoom at the time trying to figure out what this Zoom thing was <laughs> and how we're going to use it. But it was like a Friday night. It's like, hey, I'm home. 
because everyone's home. Can't go out. You want to you want to get together and drink for a while? It's like, yeah, yeah, I do. I really, really do. Let's do that. And, and I've um, not turned down a drink since myself. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it, it is funny because uh, people have definitely looked for ways to get away from doing the Zoom thing. And I totally get it. But I was thinking about our time together. I think we did it once, twice, a couple of times, maybe. I don't remember. It's, yeah. all, it's all such a blur, to be honest with you. It is. And um, during that time, I spent so much time watching Drunk History and just like it was one of the things that actually saved me during the pandemic. It was one of those things like that show and just watching it, it made me laugh. And, and I loved it. I watched all five seasons of it. It was the greatest. And I, I, I've been like toying with this idea ever since. And I'm like, you know, we do so much drinking at <laughs> trade events and tell such great stories and it's so much fun. And then we get home and it's like, then when I'm doing Confo by Design or we're having meetings with people, we get all serious again. And I thought, you know what? If we were in person, we would definitely be doing this. The three of us are in three different states, which is just crazy to me. But I thought, we still need to do this. So I started this idea. This concept is called drinking about design. Here's how it works. I get to hear you guys tell me great stories about some amazing creatives. And I, I, I prompted you, I gave you some individuals that I think you personally and professionally would identify with. And it's just fun for me because the more I started researching these guys, I'm like, oh, Eric and John, you guys, these guys are gonna just crush it. You're gonna love these guys. So the first thing I wanted to know is um, what you're drinking and why. Um, and Eric, I'm going to throw it to you first. All right. Well, my uh, architect is Al Beadle, who's an iconic architect in Arizona and somebody certainly that I absolutely love and adore and would die if I could end up in one of his homes someday, personally. But um, so his his funny story is, you know, that he's uh in while he lived in Arizona he'd get together with a bunch of his architect buddies on every Sunday morning while his wife went to church and he would sit there with them and drink his Bud Light Tall Boys so I've got uh and he would do it he would drink a six pack I wasn't I've got my own 12 pack here so I'm not sure I'm gonna do that in an hour but he, he would sit around with his his buddy architects and they would talk about architecture and that was their religious moment and their church uh vibe every sunday morning and actually i love that <laughs> and i think how fun that could have been because i know a bunch of the guys that were his drinking buddies on those sunday mornings and i just think to be one of the guys in the room during that time must have been really cool so I, I, that's what i'm I, doing I love that. And I, I also love that you're, you're throwing it down that Al Beetle was a lightweight just with the six pack and you're going to, you're going to double his efforts. And, yeah. and I love that. Yeah. I cannot a bunch wait. Of guys to share it. <laughs> I cannot wait to hear more about Al Beetle. John, mm -hmm. you've, you've got, you've got quite the setup going on there. Uh, what yeah. are you throwing down today? Yeah. Well, this is an ode and honor and homage to Mr. Billy William Haynes, who I somehow feel really connected to. So you've chosen a good one for me, actually, Josh, because 
I actually love William Haynes. I call him Billy, just so you know. Um, yeah. 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 I don't know if you know him that well, but I do. So I, I call him Billy. And so he was, we'll talk more about who he was, but who he was as a person was this fabulous entertainer. And so I felt if he were alive today, he would be hanging out with the Sex in the City gals, having a Cosmo, which is by the way, my favorite dream, because it looks very innocent. It looks very innocent. But inside of that is like, you know, that much liquor, that much vodka, which is the way I am. I kind of hide myself behind that much vodka at all times. And then if you see, I figured he would have this hanging on his drink if he were alive today as well. So this is literally my ode to Billy, ha Billy Haynes. And I feel like if he were here with me, he would be toasting me with this cocktail right now on one of his cocktail tables, of course, right? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so in that spirit, um, I am going with um, it's cocktail that I have called the Billy Haynes. Oh, this is the Billy Haynes. However, you stole it, my. Oh my god! No, 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 no. It's called the Billy Haynes. However, if you're in Los Angeles, it's known as a John McClain, and if you're in Arizona, it's known as an Eric Peterson. Ah, and and, then, and if you're in Tulsa, it is, it's known as the it's, Josh nobody, nobody's drinking this in Tulsa. Trust me, <laughs> it is uh, it is vodka cranberry. I went uh -huh. with Deep Eddie, but it's a vodka cranberry with a splash of uh, black cherry, spike seltzer, and a little lime. Okay, that's Love pretty. That. That's pretty. That's pretty fancy. Okay, all right. That sounds amazing. I was was it? Did it involve a shaker at all? Did it involve a shaker, or was it? You just know, I I I don't I don't get that fancy with it. I probably could have, uh, but no. No, I am no so shaker. fancy with it that my husband. I complained about my hands getting cold, so he bought me a shaker that is so insulated that you can't even feel the ice on the inside of it. Wow. Of of yeah. course he did. I know. I love it. Oh, so much. That is amazing. I that is, he is amazing. That is fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yes. Well, that's, really what, that's what makes it a John McClain is it'll be shaken. Mine could be stirred. <laughs> <laughs> and mine is just sloppy on the rocks. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. You know what? I, well, I love that's exactly how it drink. should be. Yes. Are you guys that person at the table? Like, so when the when the waiter or the server comes around and they're like, are you done with that? And there's like one sip left in the cocktail. I'm like, no, I'm not done with that. And I'm like, <laughs> yes. and I literally drink down the last gulp before they try to steal it away from the table. Right. I'm so glad I'm not the only one. Yeah. I'm no, I slapped the, her hands. I, yeah, no, guy, I love that. I'm the one guy at the table that always has the sweet drink. And unfortunately, I always end up getting the drink that somehow comes with an umbrella and <laughs> I can't tell you how many times the the server comes back to the table with all the drinks and puts my drink down in front of my wife and she has to go that's his <laughs> <laughs> do you know what honestly Eric I think that life would be better if there were a few more umbrella umbrella drinks Yes. Around the table. I, I really do. Or maybe just a little man on the side of the drink. Maybe he just counts. a little, you know, a little you know man what? in a bikini. Not, that's fantastic. Did you sure. get a whole set? Like, are they all different? They all have names on their butts. And so I get them for my friends. And that I way we put, the, we put them on their drinks. And that way we know whose cocktail is whose at a party. So. <laughs>
there was no Billy, but today I'm Mitch, apparently. So there you go. Do you want us to start calling you Mitch? Yeah. Oh, no. Today, Billy. Today, Billy. (laughs) Today, Billy. So, you know, what's interesting is I, 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 and I don't, I'm not going to tell you why necessarily I, I chose Billy for you because I don't want to. He's a flaming um, homosexual with great taste. That's why you chose him. Okay. You're going to make me tell you. So (laughs) no, I'm not going to, you know what? I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to save the story because, um, I don't know if you're going to include it in what you're talking about, but here's the thing. And obviously I didn't know Billy Haynes, right. But a very sensitive individual, a very creative individual had a history in the, in, you know, in show business, did amazing things in in design. He was also somewhat of a badass. Mm -hmm. um, was, horrifically victimized and tur- not that you were, but it turned that into something absolutely extraordinary. And, you know, from what, what you and I have known each other a long time. And one of the things that I love about you is you are one of the most fluid and flexible creatives. I know you don't see problems. You only see opportunities and I wish I was as positive as you are. I wish I had the ability to do that. And, and not knowing Billy Haynes, I kind of thought that's, those are some, some qualities, some characteristics that I see very, very similar in what I know about him and what I think about you. I mean, that's an honor. Thank you. I, that's, that's so nice of you. I appreciate that. And right back at, I mean, like that, I kind of feel as if, uh, I mean, not to, you know, like when you're, so I'm gay, obviously. And I mean, I have a naked man on my glass. So obviously I'm, I'm gay. sorry. And, wait, what? Yeah. Newsflash, everybody. Newsflash. I'm gay. Uh, and so there's a gay interior designer in the world, which is so I know it's so rare. Right. And that never happens. Um, hold on. And so um, what I liked about Billy Haynes is that even during the time when he was this, he was a huge star, like a huge star, like massive, like with uh, Metro Golden Mayor. And so he had this big Hollywood career, but behind the scenes, everyone kind of knew who he was and kind of knew like, oh, okay, you're, you know, you have, you have another lifestyle that you had not let you live, but yet the world can't let you show that. I kind of, that's the part that I relate to him about is because during the kind of the first few years of my career, I didn't really express truly to clients who I was and 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 that I was had a, a husband and that I had this other, you know, personal life. I didn't really do that. And I felt bad that I didn't because the minute I did, everything changed. Everything was so different. Everything was so much more personable. Clients knew who I was and I was able to relate to them differently. And, you know, they were able to relate to me differently. So it was like a, a switch was was turned on and I think the same thing happened to him, you know, when he was in this horrible place in his life, when he was this big movie star. And then all of a sudden, did you know that they, 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 he did, he did a film called, I think wild, wild West or wild West or something where he kind of played a gay character and they did it to, they called him a pansy in the movie. And then suddenly the world saw him differently. So he was like this flamboyant character and the, and, and all the people watching the movie were like, wait, this isn't William Haynes that we know. This isn't this like, you know, sexy studly Hollywood star that we know. And then, so they turned on him, they left him. 
out in the cold. And then they either said, you get married, you go and you get married to a woman and pretend you're someone else or you're gone. Guess what he did? Left. Hmm. Yeah. So his whole life changed in a lot of ways. And for good, for better and for worse, you know, like I think mostly for better, for, for, for the better, for all of us who love design, because I've always loved his designs and his design still resonates today. You know, honestly, it's still around now and his, his, his furniture and his lighting and everything is still around for everybody to enjoy, which I think is so fabulous. But as a person, I'm just like, wow, what a stance you took at that point and then he was actually arrested at a gay bar as well he was part of a yeah he was part of a like sort of uh uh infiltration of police at a gay bar where he was uh arrested and you know just for being yourself and so for me you know people like that there's so many people who lay the groundwork for the gay community to be who we are and to be authentically ourselves and i feel that that story his story is not even out there as much as it really should be you know like there's stonewall and all the things there but there's obviously people in the 30s and 40s who did just as much and he had a horrible situation which we can talk about whenever you're ready but even worse than that situation happened to him um once he actually you know left the hollywood industry and the acting field and everything but yeah interesting guy like super super talented super interesting and sort of forged his own path which i think is the way to go and you know we're all entrepreneurs all three of us so we all get it we all understand the the, the benefits of sort of making your own pathway in life right yeah yeah so i want to i want to talk about the the work and sort of what you love about it and what you what you find so interesting about it and other stories but before we do that. I actually want to, I want to, I want to, and Eric, I think you may find this interesting if you don't already know it. John, when you're talking about what happened to him, this particular situation, uh, I'm curious, are you talking about Manhattan Beach? Yes. Okay. Okay. So <clears throat> Manhattan Beach is home for me. Yeah. And yeah, um, it is. You're right. I, yeah. I forgot about and that. And yeah. I, I had heard a story years ago, which is when I talk about Billy Haynes being a badass, you know, this is this is part of what goes into it. I had heard this story. And it's just it's so horrific to me, but tell tell the story. Well, and let me preface this by saying that a story like this could also happen today to anybody to a minority, but to anybody who is marginalized in any way, who feels like there are people who are looking around the corners. So I've, cause I felt the same way. Cause I feel people who are nice to me sometimes, and this is terrible, but I've had people who were kind to me and I'm like, are you trying to like, you know, you know, do something nasty to get me in? Like, to, what are you trying to do? What's your ulterior, ulterior motive? And so, so, so Billy Haynes and his husband were in Manhattan beach and living their lives they had a house there and you know he was on the beach talking to a young man they both were and apparently someone saw it and realized that they thought they made up in their heads that he was trying to proposition this young child who i i think from what i can understand was like eight or nine ish maybe somewhere in that range if what i understand is correctly but anyway a a, a child so this 
this person who saw this went on a rampage with the entire community of Manhattan Beach to rally and basically came to their house, you know, kind of with torches saying like, you know, get out of here, get the hell out of our neighborhood. You are trying to corrupt our kids. You're trying to molest our kids. You're trying to cause all these problems. And the kid turns out, you know, it goes to trial. Turns out that the, the, the kid couldn't recognize the, the person that they're saying that he was talking to, that they did this to, couldn't even pinpoint who they were saying. So he, the, the charges were dropped. Um, so it never really happened. So his life went on and he became, you know, much bigger and better because of that. But, but it couldn't have totally turned in a different direction to where he would have been marginalized even worse than what he was at the time. So how, how funny and how sad and how just almost detrimental to his career that one person's perception of another person's lifestyle and then and, and at the time, of course, you know, and then even now being gay and being who you are is not as easily accepted as with a lot of people. So there's a lot of people out to get us. And there's a lot of people that I don't I distrust without outside of my outside of my inner circle that I really don't trust. And so for me, it's like, well, if you're not who I know and trust, then I'm going to keep you at arm's length. And and this is the perfect story, because, again, that was 1936. Okay. Okay. I was going to say like almost forties. So like on late thirties. So, and you know, here we are now, it could totally happen in 2023. I, I promise you it could. Uh, and you know, there was just the guy who was dancing to Beyonce outside of the convenience store in Brooklyn who got, you know, he got, uh, attacked. And so for being yourself, sometimes you get penalized in life. And so for, for Billy Haynes to come back from that and be like, no, I didn't do anything. I'm just a human being. I'm just being myself. And, you know, there was no charges against him. And he went on to become even bigger and better in his design career than he ever was before, after that point. But there's always people out to, there's there's always the negative people out there who are ready to attack, I guess. And that's the part that I can't let go from, from that story. Now, there, I had, he- I had heard some, some additional detail to that, which I think you may find interesting. Um, and there's a denouement to it, which is what really, which is what really reminds me of you and why I, I thought this was such a perfect match. Um, and by the way, I will, as we, I continue to dig on that story, I will post in the show notes links to, to the story where people can actually go and dig deeper if, if you want to. It's very really, interesting. It's yeah. very, very interesting. Yeah, it really is. So the mob, that came after him wasn't a group of El Porto or Manhattan Beach citizens. It was actually the KKK. Oh, I didn't know it that was, part of it. It was oh. it was the White League <laughs> of Southern California. There was actually the White League in Southern California, which was a chapter of the Ku Klux Klan, right? I'm rolling my and eyes so hard that the, you can probably feel the wind off of is, it. Like is, this. That, is that not just astounding? Right. Um, I mean, so yes and, no. yes and no. Yes. And that no. is that's how that's what I learned was actually the group that came after him. And so the denouement to that, like the 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 John McClain moment for me in seeing that was that um, Billy Haynes, after that, came out with a line of colored linens. Colored linens. 
And his, when asked about it, he said, because the KKK likes to dress up in bedsheets. So I'm going to make a line of fabulous bedsheets that they will <laughs> never be able to use. And I thought, you know what? That is just badass. That is amazing. Way that to stick awesome. it in their crawl, Billy. Way to <laughs> stick yeah, it. I just thought, you know what? That like, that's a really, that's a, that's a cool thing. That's a cool thing. Do you, um, do you see any, here's a weird question for you. If, if, if William Haynes was a working designer today, mm-hmm. how would his work be? I don't know. Do you think your work, Eric, you know, you chime in on this too. Do you think your work is judged? Like, is it judged? Is it evaluated? You know, you're, you're, you're creatives. Your, your work winds up in the pages of magazines. It winds up in the, in the, in the trades. Mm. Do you feel that you're judged by the work you do? Do you embrace that? Do you worry about it? Is it something that causes you stress? And if, you know, how would, how would his work be viewed today? Um, I mean, I don't, I, I think, I, I think his work today would still stand the test of time because it still is standing the test of time because you can still see his influence of Hollywood Regency in my designs and other designers' designs, Kelly Wurstler. I mean, like all of these people who respect and love what Billy Haynes did. And, you know, his, like the, the way that he, Something about just the way that he understands proportions is so interesting to me. Like low slung chairs, you know, and then and the the sometimes the, the taller coffee tables. It's so interesting to me. Like that's what that's what I first realized. That's when I first knew who he was when I was even a kid. Was from his slipper chairs. I just love these. I'm like, those are the coolest slipper chairs. Like, what are those? Like, those would be so amazing. As a little kid in Georgia who even didn't even know what a slipper chair was, I'm like, these are the coolest chairs. They won't fit in my cabin, but you know, I'm just kidding. I, I didn't grow up in a cabin, but well, maybe, I, yeah, maybe I did. Um, but, but I was like, wow, these are so cool. And so I feel like he would be accepted today because, you know, one of the things about his designs was and is that people didn't even touch. They didn't change anything that he did sometimes for 30 plus years after he designed a room. So Tallulah Blank- Bankhead, so she would they, like that, that her space wasn't changed forever after he designed it. And she was one of the ones, Joan Crawford, like there's a whole Joan Crawford story with Billy. Hank. Like they were best friends. And, you know, he was like, thank God they didn't call you Joan Crawfish because, you know, that would be a horrible worse name than Joan Crawford. But because, you know, Joan Crawford's a made up name that they Hollywood gave her. Right. And so anyway, so. I'm saying that I think that he would still be around. I think that he would still be uh, accepted. And I feel that to me, he didn't give a crap about what people said about his lifestyle and about his choices and about who he was with. I mean, he literally threw away a Hollywood career to to be with the person that he loved, uh, which, by the way, ended in a horrible like his his husband, like like committed suicide after he passed away because he couldn't even live without it. And that's how close they were. And to me, it's like, wow, like you have such a lasting imprint on the design world. So I I feel like I don't really worry about what people say about, I mean, Eric, you can talk too as well, but I don't really worry about what people say about, there's always someone with opinion 
you know, uh, they're like a certain part of the body. We all have one. Uh, and so <laughs> I think that uh, I don't really care what people say anymore because I'm confident in what I do and I'm confident in what I, uh, my talents, I'm confident in why I did it. And I'm confident that I did it for the client. And I think that's why we do what we do is for that client, not for the world as a whole, because everybody can sit and judge behind their commute computer monitor and say whatever the hell they want to say about what they're seeing. But are they really, they don't know the reasoning why behind the behind, they don't know that that was their grandmother's chest that we put into that room because they loved it so much. And their grandmother just passed away, even though it may not be the most beautiful piece that has sentimental value. So without knowing the reasoning behind things, I think people are quick to judge in society and, and especially in what we do, which is such a visual industry. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, we, we're constantly judged. I mean, we're judged not only by our own profession, but we are judged by, you know, because our pop projects are so public, it, they do become something that it, 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 everybody thinks that they could give their opinion now, especially with social media. They all think that they could provide this input. And so, you know, uh, on our custom home side, because we are doing ultra rich, uh, you know, we're doing mega mansions that they call it now, you know, look at, you know, Richard Landry continually gets said, you know, oh, look at he's doing, he's the mega mansion, you know, architect for the, all the superstars, you know, we, we get caught up in that as well. You know, if I go to the architects, you know, American Institute of Architects, AIA things, the other architects kind of, you know, oh, you do luxury homes. Oh, yeah, thanks. You know, we don't want to talk to you. You know, it's not it's not looked upon as real architecture, you know, that it, why should anybody have to have a 30 or 40,000 square foot house? We we as architects should shouldn't ever do those. We should turn those away. You know, that's disgusting. So there, you know, there's that aspect of it, right? But, you know, I've been making a living at it for 20 years. We've won awards. We've been published. I think every single house that I've ever designed has been featured in some magazine somewhere, which I'm completely honored and, and blessed to have that occur. But lots of architects, including Al Beadle, have struggled over the years with producing projects. He, he, tended to be very much influential in doing affordable housing. He was part of a, a group of architects that created a case study homes just to show a certain style of house in this modernist movement. What, what, the most famous one being the one that uh, is pictured behind me. And, you know, I think it's just, we put our artwork out there and um, it's different from, you know, an artist that has an art piece that hangs on a wall. These are occupiable uh, pieces of art and they influence the communities that we're in, you know? And so the other part of our business is hospitality business. So that absolutely impacts. I mean, people write, you know, specific descriptions, both on things like Yelp and, but also when hotels open, you know, that they get critically reviewed and they get stars and, you know, th those things are important to hoteliers. So you know, everything we do is very important to, you know, the end result. And if people come and, you know, sometimes you could create a big buzz, like something like Kelly Wurstler or Martin Lawrence Ballard might do that creates like a real wow. And then everybody wants to go see it. 
uh, and, and you know, rather than just doing something that's more quiet and nobody talks about, you know. Don't you find that the more, um, maybe the, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I find that the more times that I'm true to myself, that I'm true to the vision that I had in my head, the more attention it gets, the more people are interested in it, the more Absolutely. it's like, wow, what is that? Yeah. All right. You know, so, I think Al Beadle was important to do that too. I mean, he he was somebody that just said, you know, I'm going to recreate what a house is. He kind of took what Mies van der Rohe was doing and Frank Lloyd Wright was doing and sort of merged those two things together and created a, a style that was unique. And on that note, here's what I want to do. Um, I need a refill and I'm not as, I was not as industrious as you guys to have your refills with you. So <laughs> talk amongst yourselves. Uh, I'll be right back. <laughs> no, so, yeah. John, are, are you aware of um, uh, Al Beadle's work? Have you, is this some, someone you've been? Uh, no, I'm not actually. I'm not. No. So what, tell me a little bit about like, if you were to encapsulate it into, you know, like a elevator pitch, obviously I can see this aesthetics, but if you were to. Yeah, I, 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 modernist. Him, but I don't know exactly what you would say he his style was or his aesthetic was. Yeah, well, so modernist, so mid, mid-century modern mm-hmm. architecture, very much in that Palm Springs sort of a feel. He was really somebody who, you know, took the work of, you know, William F. Cody that was so popular within the Palm Springs market, and he collaborated with at some points in his life. But he did, he came to Phoenix. He was, you know, originally a Midwesterner and was trained and went in the world, World War II as what they called a CB. He was one of those, these construction uh, guys in the army uh, and uh, military that did construction projects, you know, uh, during the war overseas. And that's where he learned how to do things and eventually moved uh, to Phoenix and started to do this modernist work and uh, and uh, 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 he's really sort of most known for the fact that he uh, was practicing as a non-licensed architect, you know, had done over <laughs> 100 projects that were commercial projects, but also uh, uh, residential projects. And oh I mean, my that God. pretty much tells the type of person that he was. He didn't care. He was performing this and got in trouble by the AIA. And they <laughs> I love it. I his love entire it. career because he he was not a licensed architect, but was doing all of this work. And if it wasn't for uh, an architect who caught wind of this and uh, came out and basically said, uh, 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 came and came, it came to my attention that you need an architect and, and uh, if you'd like, I'm an architect and they partnered together and he continued to use this other gentleman's stamp for years, uh, until that guy died and then have the gall to continue to use his stamp after he died. Okay. So this opens up like a whole can of worms for me because, okay. Here, I feel talent is talent. I feel your innate talent is your innate talent. Of course, education enhances it. Of course, I get it for all of us, right? But I know a lot of people 
in a lot of states who are interior designers who legally should not be doing commercial projects because they're not licensed in those states to do commercial projects. And I I just I just find it the the I, I know that there's of course things that we know as people uh, you know when you're educated and when you are licensed to do commercial projects or any sort of things that require licensure um you know there are is, there's an education requirement behind that but what what is the formula for education in your eyes eric versus like education versus inspiration and innate knowledge like what is because you have a passion, I have a passion, we all have a passion. That's why we're doing what we do. But what is in your eyes that percentage of like, oh my God, this is what I love to do. I could do it with my eyes closed. And then this is what I need to bring in from my education. Just curious. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's funny because we have a lot of interns that uh I typically say, listen, if you've got the talent, it just seems so silly for you to go to school for you know, five years to become a licensed architect, I tell them to go ahead and do business classes and legal classes and even, you know, psychological classes because <laughs> so much of what we do with our clients is, is you know, uh, you know. Preach, brother, preach. Marriage yeah. counseling. Yes. So those aspects of the things you don't know, you know, after me, you know, I've sat through five years of, architecture school and two more years of master's degree and I'm like that was all just sort of continuing to enhance a talent that I already had what I didn't have was the business background the legal background that you know really would have been something that I needed to understand so many architects fail you know I think the AIA's uh, uh, percentages says like five percent of architects that go out on their own actually make it and one percent of the ones that make it you know actually become wealthy enough to live comfortably i, so I can see that horrible st statistic yeah but i can see that going into interior designers as well Absolutely. I, there's so many interior designers who also we're not none of us are taught that in school none of us are i remember the only business class that i was taught in design school was well, the part that I remember was I made a logo. <laughs> I made a logo of what I wanted my company name to be. Yeah, and, I did uh, <laughs> Yeah, so we and then I made a like, fake business plan that I just basically copied and pasted from what they gave me. But there was nothing else. There was nothing else that was really like, oh, here's how you deal with a client. Here's how you start a consultation. Here's how oh, you, you know, begin a, you know, from the minute a client calls you until the minute you're done, like, what do you do between here and there? And so I, I agree with you. Like, that's the part that I feel is, is missing. And I don't even know when that's ever going to change, honestly, but in, in, in either of our industries, by the way, you know, like in either of our education fields, I should say. Here's what's interesting to me. Um, so Al Beadle, not a certified architect not a a a licensed architect so interesting oh my billy god haynes, i didn't know that billy haynes i don't believe he was an nope. interior designer i think nope. he was an interior decorator well there was no licensing at that point anyway so yeah but you know you you still have some like i remember um i interviewed once uh alex papa and it was really interesting because he told me he was like i am a decorator 
It's like, okay, cool. <laughs> I got it. And I think there's a badge of honor that kind of comes with that. And I'm just, you know, so I don't think that your, your ability to, to get through classes and possess a license has anything to do with the, with the, with the creativity that launches it. And Eric, you know, you have, you and I have had so many conversations about architecture. And recently I, um, I think you saw being here in Tulsa, I went out and visited the, um, the price tower, Frank Lloyd Wright's one and only um, skyscraper. And you know what I found interesting? There is such a level of hype that goes with Frank Lloyd Wright that does, that isn't attached to an albedo, right? And when I was looking at Wright's work, there were things about his work that the docent was pointing out. There were plants, you know, the, the executive office was on the 19th floor, <clears throat> obviously, because that's where the greatest view was. So it was on the 19th floor. It had like 20 foot ceilings to make this small enclosure look much bigger, right? but they put the plants up at 15 feet. So you couldn't actually get up to them to water the plants. So to water the creeping Charlies, some guy would climb a ladder and he'd reach up with the, with the, with the, with the bottle to try to get it. And it wound up leaking onto Price's prized globe, which Frank Lloyd Wright absolutely hated. So he put it in the corner and it got leaked on from the plants. This is just, it was, it made no sense. Yeah. The fact that there was a fireplace, there's a fireplace, a wood burning fireplace on the 19th floor of this skyscraper. Okay. And Wright didn't like putting wood horizontally. So he put the wood vertically and only later understood that, yeah, you kind of need a, <laughs> you need a screen because as the wood burns, it falls down. So wood fell into burning wood fell into the office on the 19th floor. So they realize, oh yeah, we got to put a screen there. You would think that some of this stuff would be thought out like well in advance, not after it was already built and in application. There were certain things like the hallways, incredibly small, the, the walkways, incredibly small, the, anyway, but you get a guy. And by like, the way, Frank Lloyd Wright never graduated, dropped out of college, went to University of Wisconsin, dropped out his uh, sophomore year. And never was a licensed architect. That I knew. They, yes, they added yes. it. They gave him an honorary. And in the same light, when when uh, Al Beadle was arguing uh, his case, he used that. He said another famous architect in Arizona <laughs> did also not have it. So they offered him, as they did Frank Lloyd Wright, an honorary license, which he said, "Fuck you," and went and took the test. And actually passed. So in the end, he did get it uh, and turned down the honorary uh, license that that they were ready to provide him on. But the sad thing about the whole thing is he never really was looking for fame. He never really talked about fame or wanted to fame. He was sort of one of those guys that sort of was a little bit rough and tough and um, gruff, you know, I like to say. But on the final days, you know, before he died, he was bedridden and 
he he made a comment to one of his his buddies that went to see him and he said you know what i'll be famous after i'm dead mm. it never was one of those things that like he ever talked about being famous it was kind of the only time he ever said anything about fame but he he had such great personal ethics about his integrity that i think were unmatched but this kind of thing that all architects i think have is this relentless pursuit of perfection and that torments us like i'm a i'm a virgo i'm a, a first child so i have that you know, a personality type. And this torment basically eventually is what took a toll on his body and he had a stomach hemorrhaging and that's what eventually killed him. But how do you define perfection? Like, is it per project? Is it an overarching goal in your entire we, career? I, don't think, I think that's what's the biggest problem is we can't even define perfection. Oh, you know? okay. My wife asks if if we could ever live in a house that I designed, and I'm most like, I don't think I can because all I would see is everything that I, you know, could have done better, as opposed to if I lived in one of these albedos or a frankly right house, all I would be able to see is the beauty and the inspiration. But yet, you know, I'm sure Albedo went into this house and would be like, I did that wrong, I did that wrong, I did that wrong. It's yeah, just of course struggle that I think we have as artists and and especially as architects, you know, that there's there's always, you know, you, you, we, we struggle to put the pencil down sometimes, you know, sometimes you just have to go, yeah, but I can make it that much more better. And it's just like, you got to stop. I think it's the details. I think that we see so many minute details and everything that we do in yeah. the creative industry and the creative fields. And so that it's, it's, it's our job to to know all of the opportunities and all of the, you know, options for clients. And so when we do it for ourselves, we're like, Oh shit. Like what yeah. did I miss? Like, like what? Like, cause you know, I told my husband this, both of you listen to this. I told my husband this, he's like, Oh, let's have a dinner party. I'm like, um, okay, it's not just having a dinner party. It's like they're gonna come over with a big magnifying glass as big as their head, and they're gonna walk into our house yeah. and they're gonna look at everything that I did, and every <laughs> mirror, and every light fixture, and every corner of every corner of every molding in the trim piece in the room, and ask why I did it and how it came about. And he's yeah. like, No, they won't. I said, Yes, they will. And what happens? They always do, right? Every time. So I feel like we put this sort of like seal of approval if if we do something and we present it to the world there's this like stamp of approval on it from us as the professional to but say wait a, but wait a minute wait a minute so what? i'm calling bullshit on that for one second because <laughs> i'm with them. well wait no here's the thing i agree with you i you're right okay and in my case um it's so funny so I get I get emails all the time. Like, look, I'm a I'm a really good editor, right? And I I consider myself a good interviewer. And sometimes you I are, leave, by the way. You are very much I appreciate so. that. Sometimes I leave things in interviews that others might take out. And I leave them in because they're germane to the conversation and they further the story or the personality of the person with whom I'm speaking. So I'll, I'll include them and, and I will get emails like, you know, 
they there's a there's a non sequitur here or there's a this or that. And so I understand where you're coming from. I totally get it. At the same time, Hmm. when we talk and here's what I find so interesting when we talk about a Billy Haynes or an Al Beetle, we're we're talking about, you know, the fuck you response to the social media. Criticism. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, there one of the things that I love doing on the show that I started doing probably five years ago is I'll talk to a designer or an architect and then we'll go through some of their work. And that's that's me not being the expert. That's me just saying, hey, why did you do this? You know, why did you do that? Why did you do this instead of that? Why did you go in this direction? Why did you put that there? Why did you? Just because I'm still curious, I kind of feel like the day that I'm not curious anymore, the day that I become perfect at what I do, the day that I become completely proficient and perfect and I get everything right is the day I should probably go do something else because that's just completely boring. But Eric, you're building structures that people live in and work in. I get it. You can't make mistakes. You know, John, same with you. Like, People live here and they have their friends come over and you know that your clients' friends are all, you know, the, 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 the fuckery of it all is, is that there's going to be criticism of it all the time, yeah. right? And so I get that that exists. How do, you, how do you get beyond that? How do you get, where's the balance? There comes a point in your life and in your career when you just keep drinking i'm sorry when you just (laughs) no when when you almost made vodka come out my nose man don't do that (laughs) there comes a point when you you only have so many fucks to give and then when you when you run out of those fucks there are no more fucks left to give and so at some point i tell so i do a lot of coaching with like younger designers and people who are just starting out. And I'm like, listen, I know like you're starting out. Like it's going to, it's going to be rough. Like you're going to be worried about what everyone says. You're going to try to do what everyone else is doing. You need to follow what you want to do and follow your own heart because that is what's going to set you apart. It sounds cheesy, but it's really true. It's what, it's why Eric has a background for the person that he's speaking about tonight is why we all have, you know, these people that we look up to is because they have set outside of the norm. They're not like, sorry, they're not like putting like, you know, the Joanna Gaines of the world. They're not like throwing out all the same shit out on, you know, they're not like doing the same thing over and over and over. It's, it's interesting things, you know? And I feel like that, the people who are, you know, sort of interrupting the world of design and interrupting the world of architecture and like making it like, oh God, what is that? Like, that is so cool. That is what we have to stand behind. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't really care anymore. Like I, I, I think it comes with age and I think it comes with like, I don't know, like maybe a sense of, um, accomplishment too maybe eric maybe that's what it is too like maybe like you know you know we we've been in magazines too and all this all the awards and all the bs stuff too but also too like behind that is like a lot of happy clients right like there's there's a lot of happy clients behind that who can say i love my house like like 
we did a client's house. Let me tell you, it's, it's a five, it's a 10 second story. Okay. We did a client's house and she had this entryway and she said, I could never figure out what to do with this entryway. And so we designed it. And, and so my lead designer and I, we were like, oh my God, this feels like, this feels like the Statue of Liberty and like the arches as you enter. And so we put this mosaic tile on that. And she was like, oh my God, that's how all my ancestors entered the United States. And we're like, we didn't know. We didn't know any, she's Jewish. We didn't know any of that. And so like the fact that she found this relationship to, you know, what we saw in her space visually, she found it in like this passionate way. Is That's the true thing. Of, that's the true beauty of design. I mean, I feel. One of my favorite stories that goes along with that, and I think that sums it all up about the clients is um, when I worked at Taliesin Architects, we were privileged to go visit a bunch of homes. And there's a home he did in California and the original owner was still living there. She was in her nineties and she was a ballet dancer. And she told Wright when she asked him, commissioned him to do the house, that she wanted a house she felt like she could dance in the rest of her life, every day, the rest of her life. Oh, And then she told us- Oh my God, I have goosebumps. Uh, she goes, and to this day, I feel like dancing in this house. And like, you just well up. You Gorgeous. Goosebumps. And I said, that's what I want to do. Amazing. And, and so when I present that plan and I'm sitting there going, you know, this design and, and I see the clients well up in tears. I've had clients on the very first time go cry and say, that's exactly what I wanted. I can't, you know, I've had clients that were, that got cancer during the design process and, and um, are still alive today, 15 years later, because they, and they, one of them would call me every month and tell me how much he loved his house and that it saved his life. Wow. Those stories, that that does it for me. That that proves that I'm I've done what I've been <laughs> here to do, and I enjoy what I do every day. And I have to get past the fact that I might not think everything was executed absolutely perfectly because I made that client cry and I made them so happy the rest of their life because they feel like they have something that was you know, a piece of art that they could live in that they're that, you know, they can enjoy every single day of their life. And it's and with social media now, it's even so much more beautiful because I could watch my clients post pictures uh, every single day, enjoying their home and sharing it with their friends. It's it's the greatest job ever. I think when when a client has the same pride of their finished product that we have of their finished product, that is that surpasses to me all paychecks, all invoices, anything yep. that I've gotten from that whatsoever. It is like, wow, like that, you, you got it. Like you, we're, we're on the same page. That's yeah. amazing. So I feel you. That's very so, well said, Eric. Very well said. Very well I'm said. I'm curious. So Eric, what is, what is Al Beatles legacy? Why? I, I get the, I get the, why don't more people know of him? I get it. But what is the legacy? What is the um, what is being what has been done that is sort of the outcropping of what he started? What was different about his design, and what is the what is the lasting impact of a of an Al Beetle designed project? Yeah, you know it's really 
because he never really sought that fame, you know, it, there is a missed opportunity because I think a lot of people don't see the value because a lot of the homes that he did were modest homes. When these lots come up for sale, they don't see the value in the architecture that, that's there. They're very simple homes. They're, you know, they're kind of like in this grid kind of a thing. So for us architects, we're completely like in love with it. every architect living in Phoenix. When this, any of these homes that he has comes up for sale, it is every architect goes crazy to try to buy it. But that's it. You know, if we miss the opportunity and a developer buys it, it's torn down in a heartbeat. Nobody even bats an eye except the architects standing around the corner crying. So, you know, ASU tried to, to take this to another level, you know, when Al was still alive, they asked him, you know, that we would love to hold your archive of work. And, you know, I think that sort of flattered him for a while. His friends have told me that he was sort of like, wow, ASU wants my work. Like he didn't even know like why. And so uh, Eddie Jones, who's an architect still in town here and a, an amazing architect uh, and, and has gone to a different level. People love his work and he's teaching. And and um, and so he was a very good friend of Al's and he, he put on this exhibit at ASU and a couple of professors at ASU created a book and wrote a catalog. But somewhere along the way, which was probably bound to happen, they pissed Al uh, off. and. Al then at the end of that whole thing withdrew the archives in the middle and said, you're not getting any of my work. And, and the funny thing was it was the, the book in this exhibit was the first time that people were really even made aware that this guy was worth, you know, doing great work and worth saving. And, and he, he said, screw you. I don't want you to have it. Um, fortunately, after he died, his wife, Nancy, did provide the work to ASU and ASU does have this archive that students can go to and people are, you know, architects could go and actually see his original drawings and, and uh, see the, the artwork that he's created. And, and there is a small movement now to save his work, but with as hard as it is even to save the existing Frank Lloyd Wright buildings that are all over the country, uh, it's super, super hard, you know, to to um, protect. And obviously in LA, you know, groups like Saving Iconic Architecture and, and you know, just looking at not even, the, you know, certainly the big name architects, but even architects of, uh, that aren't as well known like an Al Beadle, but have significant projects within the uh, LA community. You know, we see it every day being, you know, torn down to build, you know, bigger homes or or less influential homes, you know, it's it's sad. It's interesting to me because, you know, there's this difference between designers <clears throat> and architects. And I've I've said this before, it's really interesting. You know, designers design for a 5, 10, 15, 20 year window of time. Architects designed for 75, 100, 150, 200 years in time. And, you know, it's, it, you, get to, you get to a point where, like here in Tulsa, there's a community called Lortondale. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's Lortondale is in Tulsa. It is this entire community 
of mid-century modern homes. It was marketed in the 50s when they built it as mid-century moderns. And they, in the CCNRs, you can't tear it down. Mm. So this whole community of mid-century modern homes still remains as built. And it's amazing. And every now and then, properties still come up. I was looking, I look every now and then, and I think one came up in a, in the last couple of weeks and it's, you know, it's a $320,000 house. It's not, it's not overly expensive, but it's the same build that was done in the fifties. It's the coolest thing down the street. I was walking my dog the other day and there's a Frank Lloyd Wright for sale for $8 million. It's the pickle factory. And, um, it's, it's so funny. West Hope is what it's called. And it, it's the pickle factory because one of the neighbors was looking at it, and, you know, when it was built, it was like, what is, what is that? And Frank Lloyd Wright looked at him and said, well, it's a pickle factory. And it was like, and the neighbor was just like, oh, okay. Well, does it have to look that way? It's like, yeah, well, yeah, it does. Cause the pickles have to grow. You know, is he's what an asshole, but he, was the greatest. he is the greatest though. Right. No. I love that. He just fucked with everybody that all the time. It's like the Mike Wallace interview. You know, I just love that. I, I would love if I could sit down and have dinner with Frank Lloyd Wright, man, I would, uh, that would be amazing. Yeah. But for every Frank Lloyd Wright, you also get, you, you also get a Wallace Neff, right? who at the end of his life, after building these incredible Spanish revivals, desi- decided that the, the, the bubble house was going to be what, what was going to solve the housing problem for the GIs. It was like, this, was, this is going to solve a problem. It turns out it wasn't the right idea. And he died in the last one, right? Like his, his bubble house in Pasadena is the last one that remains. But what a great idea. What a, what a brilliant thought. So a guy like Al Beadle, right? These, these, these modern, mid-century modern design, the low slung, the, 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 just the cool look, the cool vibe, everything you need and nothing you don't. I have to feel like there are more architects now who look at that kind of thing outside of the, you know, d- definitely in the flyover states, like outside of LA, New York, Chicago, Atlanta, Boston, Miami, what Denver, Seattle, San Francisco, outside of these markets, right? When you get into Tulsa and Kansas City and St. Louis and all of the Indianapolis and all of these other cities where design and architecture are now, is it fair to say, do you think that it's more appreciated in some of these other cities you know, Eric, you're, you're, you've developed, and I love this, you've developed this specialty, right, with, with clubs and clubhouses and hospitality. It's, it's almost like, if I had to define it, I would say it's where the rubber meets the road. It's not where you live, but it's where you, it's where you enjoy. Is, is that, and what's being asked of you is, is to create an experience. And, and that almost feels like what architecture is supposed to be. And that seems to be what like an Al Beadle was looking for in his residential architecture. Fair? Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, the reason that we're being asked to do the clubs and the restaurants that we're doing is because a lot of them now are looking for a more residential feel, you know? And so 
I think the blurb, the the blend between the two sides of things that we do, you know, the homes that we're doing want to feel, they want to feel like the resorts we're doing and the resorts we're doing want to have that aspect of the homes we're doing. They're, you know, when we do a 30, 40,000 square foot house, it has every aspect of, you know, most of the time what a client's saying is we went to this, you know, Amman resort in, you know, wherever they were in the world and they, they want that feeling every single day in their home. And, and that's because the resorts are creating, they're not creating a commercial experience of, you know, uh, they're creating a home-like experience, a comforting experience. And they're creating that in the environment. You know, the, like the Ritz-Carlton used to have the motto, like no matter where you are in the world, you know, you're at the Ritz because it was white marble and gold fixtures. And you could just open your eyes and you'd go, oh, I'm in a Ritz-Carlton, but you had no clue where in the world you were. That that whole sensibility of hospitality has changed now. They want you to feel wherever you wake up in their hotel like you're in that environment. You know, you you're in Paris, you're in Tokyo, you know, you're in the Philippines, and and you, you should have all of the aspects of that culture in surrounding you in a in a home like environment, and so. You know, we we use that same philosophy in the homes that we do. We 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 don't want to just create a a white box that anywhere. You know, and when we do something in Tulsa and L.A. and Arizona, they're totally different. The sun, the shadows, the light qualities, um, the the temperate weather changes. You have to design this this house. You know, behind me here. You, you don't put that in Chicago, right? It just doesn't work. So understanding that sensibility and knowing to put the right thing that responds to the right environment in the right place, you know, not only enhances the livability of that house and the sustainability of that house, just in being able to survive past, you know, two generations because it was designed right. And it's, and it's gonna, and everybody who, stays in that house will understand the why it's so successful because it works and and <clears throat> on the on that note final words so and eric i can i can tell that you're fond of al beetle what would you when you think of legacy what what is his legacy what does it mean currently, and what does it mean to the future of architecture? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I love his work. I mean, I've, I've always, obviously, I've been a huge fan of Frank Lloyd Wright, and I think people wonder how you how you go from masters like Frank Lloyd Wright, like Mies van der Rohe, so how, and you know Philip Johnson. How do you take those masters, but move it on today to today and you know a lot of times when the schools teach this teach these great masters a lot of the students feel like you know oh well we'll, we'll copy that same work but it's not it's not in copying it's it's understanding the essence of each one of these master designers and then applying it to today we, we just redid the Biltmore Hotel in Phoenix which was a Albert Chase MacArthur Frank Lloyd Wright uh, project, Albert 
MacArthur was a was a working architect originally in Frank Lloyd Wright's Oak Books uh, studio. So he learned from Frank Lloyd Wright and then went on to be his own architect and then brought Wright in on as a consultant. And I think now me coming onto that project, I don't want to just copy what Frank Lloyd Wright did. I need to think like Frank Lloyd Wright and go, what if Frank Lloyd Wright was alive today, what how would he use the materials at his disposal? And what kind of environment, why would he create something here that um, you know that then inspires people. So I think every one of these architects created some really ingenious things. And for us to then look at them, understand why they were done within that time period, and then how does it apply to how we live today and how the environment has changed today? I think that's what we all have to to look for. And it's these these architects, these geniuses who went outside and created a real American architecture that was not copied or influenced at all by Greek or French, you know, French or English, you know, Tudor and all of the styles that were being done at the time uh, and just copied, but really created something that's truly American and that goes in transitions over time, uh, I think is really brilliant. And, you know, if, if my work ends up being in a way that you know, after I die, that people look back on it and say, well, he learned from the masters and created his, his own new thing, then, you know, that's where, that, that would be the great thing to be written on my tombstone, I think. John, same question. Um, Billy Haynes, John McClain, legacy in design. What would you like that to be? What do you, what do you see are, are some of those touch points that, that have that kind of legacy? You know, <clears throat> I feel that exactly what Eric said, you know, you have to pay homage to history in the past, but those design and, and architecture isn't that old. I mean, as far as like, as far as we know it as a society and as far as we know it as our modern time. So for us to take those things and reinvent them now is really important. And so for me, the authenticity of ourselves is critical to that. And what I learned from Billy Haynes is like, be yourself, you know, listen to your heart, listen to what your brain tells you, listen to what your heart tells you, listen to what is not the norm, but maybe it's a little quirky and a little outside the box and a little different because this man, so Billy Haynes was this guy who, you know, was, he was outspoken in his quiet, his personal life, but in society, he couldn't be. So in, in his private life, he was this outspoken gay man married and or partnered with a gay with a husband at the time, as you would call a husband. And so for me, it's like he really was being as authentic as he could. And so when he was fired from or when he left the studios, his authenticity had to find an outlet. So his authenticity found an outlet in design and I feel that anybody can copy any design that they see from anyone else. We can copy anything that we see and call it design. And I and it, and it pisses me off to no extent to see anybody who just takes what someone else does and copies it exactly verbatim. I can't stand it. 
Just because you bring damn new furniture into a house does not mean that you are a designer. I'm sorry, we can all order from a website. That does not mean you're a designer. When you find something original that makes it special, that makes it stand out, that makes you think like, huh, what is that special sauce for that room? That is what is so interesting to me. And there's very few people in design, interior design, that makes me do that these days. And it's those people that I'm like, wow, I really want to like study, you know, this room and figure that out, why that intrigues me so much. And so Billy did a, he 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 designed for a lot of people and as, and as outgoing as he was, and as gay as he was, he had the Bloomingdale's. He had uh, Nancy and Ron Reagan. I mean, he had all these people who you would not think would hire someone, you know, because of who that what their personal life was. But the point is, there his talents to me. Your ta- his talents overtook whatever sort of hangups this person that everyone had with his personal life or whatever they had with any sort of issues with being gay or whatever. And what it taught me is like, forget, you know, you be who you are. If someone doesn't accept it, then they don't accept it. You be who you are. And here's what he says. I have a, I have a quote pull up right here. I love it. He says, quality tells you can gussy up and hide things behind veils and ruffles and suede, but the truth comes out. You had better know what you're doing if you want to last. Right. I mean, that is so true. You better know what you're doing if you want to last. And I feel like so many people who just copy things and reinvent what someone else did verbatim, it's not doing what you're doing in an original way. You're just copying other people. And that's the part that annoys me with so many designers these days is that there's no originality to it. So I, I just implore everybody to don't be scared. Find who you are. Find what is your special sauce. Find what makes you unique and put that on it. And it may seem totally weird and funky and crazy to you, but I promise you someone will take notice. And that is your person. That is your people. That is the people who need to do business with you. That's how I feel about it. I I love that. And this is probably the perfect way to wrap the first drinking about design. Thank goodness, because I don't know if we can go much longer. So, and, and Eric, and is it Mitch? Mitch today? Is that who you are, John? Yes, I'm Mitch. Yes, we're, yes, I'm Mitch. <laughs> okay, okay. I don't know. I don't know who you'll be next time, but um, <laughs> we're doing this again because uh, this was amazing. Stay tuned for uh, for new inspiration coming to you too. This was amazing. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Oh Love you guys. I appreciate it. I learned a lot actually. Like this was fun. This was fun, and I I learned that um, I need a refill. <laughs> <laughs> Did you run out of the shaker? Is the shaker done? Even the shaker's empty. Oh, I love it. I love it. Okay, perfect. So there you go. This was the first installment of Drinking About Design featuring John McLean and Eric Peterson, two incredible talents and good friends. Thank you both for doing this. For notes, drink recipes, and further links to the stories and work you heard about here, check the show notes. And as an aside, if you have uh, any thoughts on this episode, and I'm sure you do, or if you want to make a suggestion for some ideas as to stories we should cover on the next Drinking About Design, email those. Or if you'd like to join in for a drink or two, uh, include that in your email, confobydesign at outlook.com.
convobydesign.com or on Instagram at convobydesign with an X. Thanks for listening. Cheers.